Hi, this is Eric Hess with the Encrypted Economy. Today, we have Greg Exathalos, General Counsel of Multicoin, on the podcast. And we're talking about different structures for digital assets. Why is this so important? First, because, of course, the investing public at large, if they want to have exposure to Bitcoin, they're going to want to do so through a, an ETF or a mutual fund structure that they can trust. Uh, in addition, uh, sophisticated investors want fund managers often to get them exposure to a new and emerging asset class. And there's a number of ways that these funds can be structured, but each come with their own requirements, as Greg points out today. ETFs are very liquid, while mutual funds are less so. Private funds can be offered with different requirements, and those requirements can relate to things such as whether they can generally solicit or not, as well as disclosure and transparency. This, of course, is an oversimplification. So, on this podcast, after we learn a little bit about Greg's entry into the space, we start to break down the different types of fund offerings, the acts that relate to each, the difference between ETFs and closed-end fund, open-end funds, as well as the original GBTC, which is pretty much the first publicly listed trust vehicle for BTC. Then we talk about what private funds like Bitwise is doing and what regulations govern govern private funds. When we start to talk about what assets can be held by what kind of funds, this provides a segue into stable coins and whether they could be considered funds. Hint, one of the things we talk about rhymes with ever or never, <laughs> but not ether. We hit on the May 11th letter from the SEC's Division of Investment Management that related to the SEC opening the door for Bitcoin futures ETFs, as well as the history that preceded that. Then we circle back to ETH ETFs and whether that's likely to be next, as well as the current diminishing likelihood for any other ETFs in the digital asset space to follow. We close by discussing recent security law actions against BlockFi's lending program, as well as lending products on other platforms, such as Coinbase, Slen, and Gemini's. This is definitely a substantive podcast. It's okay to listen to a little bit, stop, return to it. It's all okay, but you're going to learn a lot from this episode. And I'm definitely getting positive feedback on the range of coverage by the encrypted economy and the fact that I am challenging my listeners to learn more. So I encourage you to share this episode with others if you have learned a lot from it. And with that, I bring you Greg Exothalos, General Counsel of Multicoin Capital. Welcome to the Encrypted Economy, a weekly podcast featuring discussions exploring the business, laws, regulation, security, and technologies relating to digital assets and data. I am Eric Hess founder of Hess Legal Counsel. I've spent decades representing regulated exchanges, broker-dealers, investment advisors, and all matter of fintech companies for all things touching electronic trading with a focus on new and developing technologies. So this is Eric Hess with The Encrypted Economy. And today, really excited to have Greg Exothalis, General Counsel of Multicoin Capital. I put the emphasis on the General Counsel because we're out of embargo. He's a fees official uh, as of today. So, Greg, welcome to the show and congratulations. Thank you. It's been fun. I've actually been at Multicoin now for uh, for about two months after having spent 15 years in in private practice and uh, really excited to to join the team and and to really dive headfirst into being fully crypto uh, and, and dedicating my time 100% to the the crypto economy. Right. But because it wasn't public, he had to wear a, uh, a heavily pulled over hoodie so nobody could see his face when he was advising him initially. No, just kidding. Well, <laughs> now that I'm full time in crypto, I think the hoodie is part of the uh, that's how we become sh shadowy super coders and shadowy super lawyers. 
That's true. Although I'll admit that both Greg and I are wearing collared shirts today if you're listening and not watching on YouTube. So at any rate, Greg, welcome. You know, you've had a background, obviously, preceding Multicoin Capital. So tell us about, you know, that and, and how you got into the space. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, I've been, uh, no, th- and first off, thank you, Eric, for, for having me on the podcast. It's, it's a lot of fun to be here. My background, uh, graduated law school in 2005, started going to work, and in 2007, started working in the investment management space and uh, joined a firm, Cat Mutual Rosenman, with a, a, a very high-end uh, private funds practice, as well as an investment company practice, and came under the wing of, of my mentor, a woman named Kathleen Moriarty, who's known as the the spider woman of Wall Street because she invented the legal side of the ETF industry. And uh, by virtue of working with her over the course of, uh, you know, 14 years, uh, I got to see a lot of really innovative projects and and stuff and and work on a lot of novel registered funds. And at the end of 2012, that's how I was introduced to the crypto world, which was working on the first proposal for a, a Bitcoin ETF, which was filed in 2013. And, you know, that's been a, a lot of fun for me in, in that it was an opportunity when you're trying to register an exchange traded product, uh, particularly an exchange traded commodity, you're basically doing an IPO on the underlying asset and its market. You're writing all of this disclosure. And back in 2012, 2013, that disclosure didn't really exist. So we were doing a lot of research. Uh, I don't think I've had quite so much fun uh, for work spending you know, five months on Reddit and BitcoinTalk.org and reading technical papers, academic papers, and, and, and trying to craft the first financial markets disclosure around crypto. Subsequent to, to that, uh, I left uh, Catton along with my mentor and, and joined Arnold and Porter K. Scholler, and then sub- subsequently Chapman and Cutler, all in New York, all working in the investment management and fintech practices and became a partner at Chapman. And then earlier this year, started having conversations with uh, with the guys, uh, the, the team at Multicoin and uh, joined in, in July as uh, general counsel and chief compliance officer. Excellent. So today we're going to um, get into all the different funds uh, certainly one of the things that, you know, as you look at the regula- at the SEC and CFTC and the regulation coming into the space, people who want to invest have to think of alternative ways because it may be difficult to get at the crypto assets directly, you know, maybe other than, than Bitcoin. So we're going to talk about the different vehicles for doing that. But even before we get into that, I often ask my guests for a personal experience that help, help, help shape their worldview or their values. So, Greg, what's yours? And I warned you, but you may have forgotten. So if you're like, Eric, I'm going to take a pass. I'll even, I'll debate even going back and editing this out. But uh, you tell me. So I'd love to give a crypto focused one, but I'd have to uh, go with having a, uh, a father born in Greece, which uh, has uh, heavily influenced me on the importance of Greek culture in shaping the rest of the world and philosophy, but also ha- has reminded me, frankly, of the importance of classics and understanding you know, historical philosophy, historical sciences in, in assessing real world issues and, frankly, the economy that we all live in, the legal structure we all live in. And I think back to uh, the last time I was in Athens was 2010 and or 
pardon me, 2012, uh, right before I started working in crypto. And at the National Museum, they have a uh, fantastic exhibit of something called the Antikythera Mechanism, which is about 2,400 years old. It's the first analog computer. And it's a very complicated device that you can actually go and see that came up from the, the, the bottom of the ocean floor. And it was the, the first sophisticated computer 2,000 years in advance, uh, 2,000 years plus in advance of what Western civilization would come up with for computers. And, and that allows me to say that, yes, the Greeks invented crypto and, and computing. <laughs> And and also uh, maybe uh, governance as well. You know, I, a lot of the token projects now or or the the DAOs are, are hearkening back to the Greco influence for how do we construct a governance mechanism that works. You know, in in terms of influence and and looking at the ancient Greeks. So it's it's an interesting time. I know there's some projects that explicitly align with uh, you know philosophy and the Greco tradition for governance. So. Unfortunately, so, um, the, uh, the the ancient Greek democracy was at the Agora in Athens. And uh, unfortunately, one of the Silk Road successors or purported successors was also named Agora. So we disclaim that connection. There you go. All right. So and that ends the podcast. No, just kidding. So <laughs> now we're going to now we're going to dig into the fund structure. So let's start off with just sort of a high level overview of the different types of funds in the U.S. and how they're regulated. We'll start with broad buckets and then we'll start sort of filling out each one of the buckets. Yeah. And I think I think about fund, stru- fund subject matter as generally falling within three areas. So one is funds that invest in securities principally, which would be either investment companies or exempt from being investment companies. Those are subject to the Investment Company Act. There are funds that invest in derivative instruments based on commodities, which are commodity pools. Uh, These are futures-based funds, and those are are covered by the Commodity Exchange Act. And, And then there's a bucket of funds that are covered by neither. In this industry, we would look at them as true commodity funds, and these are things like uh, funds investing in, in spot commodities like gold or, for example, spot Bitcoin, as well as funds that invest in things like collectibles, like classic cars, sometimes currency can, uh, spot currency could be a uh, true commodity fund or true currency fund. And, and those funds don't get in, the, those aren't directly regulated by the Investment Company Act or the Commodity Exchange Act. And they sort of live off in this odd place to the side. We don't normally invest in those other than uh, certain public vehicles, the most famous of which would be GLD, the first uh, uh, gold fund and a variety of other precious metals trusts. Usually when we're investing in, in commodities or even in currencies, we're doing through so through derivative instruments. Uh, so those would be commodity pools. But the bulk of U.S. investment, both on a public scale scope and a private scope, is in these investment companies or, or funds that invest in securities, including debt, not just equity, that are exempt from registration under the Investment Company Act. And when we think about that, you know, you think of it as, first, what's the subject matter? And second, are they registered vehicles? And for registered vehicles, you think of things like mutual funds or 
you know, there are certain non 40 act companies that are fund structures that can also be publicly registered, but a lot also are these private fund vehicles. There you're looking at uh, a combination of A, how is the fund being offered? And B, is it an investment company uh, subject to registration? In which case you're you're basically a, a public fund, no matter what. Theoretically, you could still just offer privately, but you're you're basically already uh, required to do all the disclosure that would would allow you to be offered publicly. So you have these sort of two axes that you're looking at: are you publicly offered? Are you privately offered? Uh, and, and what's the subject matter of your investments? Excellent. So so breaking down the the different buckets, which one? Do you want to start with? You know, when we look at what are the acts, what are the securities laws that that apply? Um, you know, there are a variety of securities laws. The 33 and the 34 Act, the Securities Act and the Securities Exchange Act get most of the attention, but there there certainly are others. And one of the most prominent and most important is the Investment Company Act of 1940, which was introduced along the same time as the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. Investment Company Act. Uh, regulates investment pools, basically, and uh, Investment Advisors Act regulates those that provide advice on on securities. So when when we think about mutual funds and ETFs, you know you're, you actually have coverage from all four of those major securities laws. You you their offer and their trading is covered by the 1933 and 1934 Act. Uh, in the case of mutual funds, it's the broker brokers that do the, the tradings because those aren't traded on a secondary basis. For the uh, ETFs, they're actually available on on exchanges. And then the, the funds themselves are, are registered under the 40 Act and the, to operate and manage uh, an investment company, including a mutual fund or an ETF, you've got to be an investment advisor. So, you know, when you look at those, what are you thinking about? You're thinking about what are the mutual funds in my 401k? These typically are very large vehicles that charge somewhere in the realm of 30 bips to two and a half bips. Typically, uh, you're getting sometimes broad market exposure, sometimes actively managed exposure. And the core premise of them is, you know, runs on a, a handful of of tenants that really draw back from something called the 1940 Act Commission, which looked at various market abuses in the run-up to the Great Depression and, and the follow-on, where you, know, you can still read the, the 40 Act Commission report and, and see some of those abuses, some of which were, were frankly a little reminiscent of, of uh, some of the worst parts of the ICO boom that we saw in 2017 in crypto. But you're, you're thinking about standard fare, Ponzi scheme type stuff, uh, you know, using customer assets, poor, pro, uh, poor portfolio management, uh, things like that. And the, the 1940 acts were developed specifically to address those issues. So they are, they, they can be pretty cumbersome. They have things like, well, first and most importantly, Mutual funds, uh, all investment companies, when you sell shares, you have to sell them at NAV. And there are pro procedures that are in place, requirements for how you establish that NAV. And uh, so when you engage with a mutual fund, you're buying end of day NAV or you're selling end of day, uh, end of day NAV, and you're doing so directly with the fund vehicle. There are some other 
investment companies other than mutual funds that are permitted to have a secondary market. Uh, those would include certain closed-end funds, uh, business development companies, which have uh, separate sections of the Investment Company Act that apply to them versus mutual funds. Uh, and then more commonly and famously over the course of the last 25 years, exchange-traded funds, which are mutual funds that have specific sets of exemptive relief codified generically in a, a recent ETF rule, 6C11, which was adopted, that allows those ETFs to operate both on a primary market basis, meaning daily end-of-day NAV with large financial institutions, who then can sell into a secondary market where retail and, and other non-AP shareholders can transact on the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ or, or CBOB, CBOE BZX. Uh, so you have a great innovation in ETFs, which allowed investment companies to be traded on a secondary market, which uh, really was, was an explosive invention, multi-trillion dollar invention, and uh, something that my former men my, my mentor and former boss, Kathleen, is a little modest about, but she played a role in, in pretty much every big uh, innovation in, in the ETF industry. And she may be ashamed to say it, but I, I, I'm happier to have some pride on that for her. Um, so, you know, the ETF and ETFs and mutual funds, uh, that, that's what we normally think about when we think about investments in fund vehicles in the U.S. because those are available to retail customers. They're a couple of clicks away in your brokerage account. They're typically low fee and broad exposure. There are certain diversification requirements for some, not all, investment companies. Uh, and, and there's such a wide variety of them that um, you know, it, it, it's really a, a truly massive market. But they're not the only the only fund type, not the only fund type that also invests in securities. Right. So before we 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 delve into some of those other ones, uh, ETA, you know, there's a lot of talk in the crypto space about the need for the ETFs, and I uh, and I guess the 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 reason why ETFs are preferred to mutual fund is they're viewed as more liquid, maybe more the composition more representative, the fees are lower to trade them. And that makes them more appealing to the retail space. But closed-end funds can also maintain indices as well, uh, correct? So arguably, you could have a closed-end fund that has an index of a similar pool of assets. Maybe, I don't know if they could have a, and maybe we could talk about that, whether you could have a closed-end fund called the Bitcoin closed-end fund and effectively have the fees such and have it traded on the open market such that it looks and feels very much like a Bitcoin ETF. Why hasn't that been uh, something looked at? Or maybe you'll tell me why it fails on its face. So there, there have been uh, a variety of funds that have been proposed. And, and there actually has been for uh, more than a year now, uh, a type of, of closed-end fund called an interval fund, which has been offered by Stone Ridge and Mydig that has offered exposure to Bitcoin futures in a closed-end fund wrapper, specific, specific type called an interval fund. The problem with it is size-wise, it's required to be small. It's not as accessible. It's not as easy as a mutual fund or an ETF. And in addition to that, closed-end funds have uh, a separate issue that they have trouble tracking NAV. So uh, I mentioned at, at one point for investment companies, when they trade, they typically have to trade at NAV. And the, the great innovation 
with uh, the ETF space is that the ETF space has this creation redemption mechanism that's engaged in by APs to basically have a low risk or riskless arbitrage opportunity on the secondary market price to NAV in a way that will collapse secondary market prices to an approximation of NAV, which is why most ETFs trade basically at NAV within a handful of bips on a regular basis, particularly the liquid ones will. And what we don't have in closed-end funds is you don't have that arbitrage mechanism. So closed-end funds will typically trade at a premium or a discount. Typically, it's a discount because you're, you're getting a liquidity discount. Uh, you don't have access to the underlying NAV, and, and that premium or discount is driven by uh, mar- market supply and demand. Typically, it, it will, over time, trend towards a, a market discount. So yes, in theory, you can have a closed-end fund that does have exposure to, to Bitcoin or to other digital assets. You, you get into a, a question then of, we've talked about the, is it a registered fund? Is it a private fund? But with respect to crypto, you have a, a very interesting question, which is, what the heck is it? Is Are you dealing with a commodity? Are you dealing with a collectible? Are you dealing with a security? Are you dealing with a, uh, a commodity interest, i.e. a derivative instrument? Or are you dealing with a classic car, which I understand from the NFT land, Sedona's are now a classic car, <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, NGMI, I guess. But with crypto funds, one of the, the first big questions that has to be confronted and and addressed is what's the underlying subject matter of the the asset class? And for a Bitcoin fund, when back in 2012, 2013, that was the first question we had to tackle. You know, is Bitcoin a commodity? Is it a security? Is it some weird other thing? Is it a currency? And, uh, you know, the position we took and and the position that uh, I think the, the, the market, including regulators, have generally accepted is that Bitcoin is a spot commodity. But that is not necessarily true of all digital assets. Digital assets have, uh, you know, are on a, a wide scale and spectrum of uh, security status, as well as potentially even commodity interest status. But you have something like Bitcoin that looks pretty clearly not to be a security on one end, on the other other end, you have things that are digital assets that are intentional securities, tokenized securities, and then you have di- digital assets that are, you know, unintentionally uh, securities simply because they fall either within one of the various definitions of a security, or they trip up one of the uh, court tests either around uh, investment contracts or uh, notes slash indebtedness. So so let's circle back to the the ETF and create and redeem because I think it's an important differentiating point for how the market effectively clears. I mean, the APs are the they're they're the author, authorized participants, or is that the that the term AP is the authorized participants? That's correct. They have in many ways they they serve a market clearing function. They almost act like in in creating and redeeming. They almost act like 
like in many ways, a market maker uh, in that they're able to sell or buy into demand through a create redeem process by if they have a basket of securities that goes into the ETF, they can they can effectively exchange them for the ETF or they can take the ETF and exchange the ETF for the basket. And in this way, they can help moderate supply and demand and, and make the market more liquid on a, on a real-time basis. Whereas to your point on the close-in fund, that market clearing function isn't there. So the drift and whether you're getting the exact price uh, the representative price, there's much more fluctuation. So, you know, you're, you might be trading thinking in terms of days where, you know, a, a 24, you know, a, a full trading day, whereas an ETF, you're thinking, you know, can I execute at the price that I'm looking at on the screen pretty much, you know, this minute, of course, depending on liquidity. Is that, and that's probably the, the primary driver ETF because it, in, in that way, because of the create redeem function, it basically, closely approximates what the underlying asset would be trading at. That's exactly right. And and that's also one of the reasons why APs uh, as a general basis, on a general basis, are broker dealers. They're large broker dealers or they're banks that aren't required to be broker dealers um, because they are fulfilling a function that, although not explicitly a, a, a distribution function, it, it is basically something that uh, mimics or, or is akin to that, whether they're a broker or a dealer is, is a fact-based question, whether they're conducting an underwriting is a fact-based question. But um, you know, they're, they're, if you read ETF documents, there's a lot of disclosure uh, around that role. And, and that is an important function, which has been missing in the product that is often referred to as a Bitcoin ETF, but we know, we know is not. Uh, and that's most famously GBTC, which is actually, you know, this spring, I don't know with current market prices where it stands, but I think it was about the third largest commodity fund in the world is the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. Its assets at today's prices are probably somewhere around, somewhere between 25 and 30 billion thereabouts, which places it not that far behind GLD, which is about 60 billion or, or thereabouts. Really, uh, you know, it's a, a product invented by uh, a woman named Anne-Marie Tierney, uh, as well as the, the rest of the team at, at, at Second Market, now DCG slash Grayscale. Uh, Anne-Marie's a lovely, a lovely person, a brilliant attorney, and innovated a lot in, in this industry in developing a private version of GLD, a private version of what we were trying to do with um, the Winklevoss Bitcoin Trust, that would initially operate on Second Market's platform, which Second Market, if for those that, that may remember, was made famous for Facebook pre-IPO stock, i.e. it was a closed walled garden, walled garden to allow liquidity on private securities. And that made, in many ways, Second Market the, the only person that probably could have effectively launched the first version of GBTC. And over time, GBTC got to the point where it could be publicly traded, but not publicly listed. Uh, and the specific term is public quotation uh, through the interbroker market and, and OTCQX. Uh, and that's what allows GBTC to sit in our broker accounts. Uh, so it allows you to buy, go onto Schwab.com and buy it or, or E-Trade or, uh, or what have you, Robinhood. So it's great in that it provides easy access to GBTC. GBTC has grown in size, however, largely because it lacked the AP function that would tie the secondary market price, the share price, 
to the underlying nav because there is no AP create and redeem function that allows a party to capture that arbitrage and bring the two prices together. So for a very long time, when market demand outstripped market supply, GBTC traded at a material premium to, to NAV. And that flipped uh, 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 about a year ago, a year, about probably about 14, 16 months ago, it flipped to a discount. And it now trades at a liquidity discount for a variety of reasons we can talk about if, if you find it interesting. But that's a, a big distinguishing feature. And that's a big investor protection issue is that we don't have a, a US Bitcoin ETF that's been made available. And yet we have a, a registered fund. GBTC is registered under the 34 Act on, on Form 10. Um, we have a registered fund that is available in brokerage accounts that's quite frankly an inferior product uh, because it's not allowed to operate as as a true ETP for reasons that have been stretching on for about eight years now. We haven't really talked about private vehicles and GBTC actually is interesting. That GBTC model, which another example of that, uh, which is very well known and, and real market leaders, thought leaders is Bitwise. Uh, which also offers a number of products, including the first uh, index-based crypto asset product. They offer, Bit, Bitwise and GBTC both offer their vehicles privately initially. And then for some of those vehicles, they've transitioned into being uh, these quasi-public OTCQX quoted available in your broker account type of, of funds. But they start as private vehicles that are are offered to accredited investors or qualified purchasers and you know when we think about the investing world everyone has access most everyone has access to mutual funds or or etfs if you open a brokerage account you don't get access to private funds or alternative uh, investment vehicles which typically have different fund structures they're typically partnerships partnerships for tax purposes, uh, as well as corporate law purposes, sometimes limited liability companies. Uh, in the case of GBTC uh, and, and some of these other crypto private funds, they've been trusts when they've been single assets to help prepare them for the OTCQX process. But when we think of the private fund world, we're thinking of you know large managers like Renaissance and, and Tiger Global, folks like that. These are vehicles that are very differently structured, first and foremost, in how they're offered. They're offered pursuant to the same general body of law, but uh, typically exemptions. So exemptions from registration and how they're offered, meaning that they're privately placed, typically under 506B or, or 506C if it's a general solicitation. Crypto funds have tended to be 506C just simply because of the nature of the market, that uh, it, it's more discussed, more open, and uh, the managers that offer crypto funds don't have, uh, did not historically have the same sort of network for placing private placements as traditional fund managers. 506B, you, you have to have pre-existing business relationships with uh, your investors. You can't generally solicit 506C. 
uh, you are permitted to publicly discuss and, and talk about your your offering. So that that's on the the thirty three act side. Instead of registering your fund on um, you know form uh, whatever applicable registration form, you will privately place it. Uh, file typically file a form D uh, and and comply with exemptions from registration. And then on the other side, you have the Investment Company Act. If you're investing in securities, you would do uh, an offering pursuant to an exemption from registration or, or a definitional, uh, either a definitional exemption from investment company or an exemption from registration. And, and the application of the Investment Company Act, the most famous of those are 3C1, where you're only selling to accredited investors, 3C7, where you're only investing, uh, selling to qualified purchasers, or uh, if you are definitionally exempt, then you would not have the Investment Company Act apply to you. And that would be true if you were not investing in securities. Uh, The Investment Company Act applies to any investment pool which is holding 40% or more of its assets in investment securities which we may talk about a little bit later in the context of stable coins, but investment securities is a very broad category and it, it, it's basically uh, anything outside of cash items or commodities. And what that means is uh, cash items is a, a very limited subset of, of, uh, of items. It's basically currency and, uh, and government securities, commercial paper, is is an investment security and even though it's a a cash equivalent for for some purposes it's not a cash item so when we looked again back in in early crypto funds if you're investing in bitcoin and and you're comfortable that bitcoin is not a security and the sec bind you is comfortable that bitcoin is not a security the division of investment management has has made that clear in correspondence filings that they believe a fund holding just bitcoin is not qualified to, to file on a form available to investment companies. They also, meanwhile, say that an investment company can't actually hold physical Bitcoin, but that's a separate matter. But if you are only investing in assets that are spot commodities, then you are not definitionally an investment company and don't have to worry about this same registration compliance with the 40 Act process. But for private funds, hedge funds most typically are what we think about private equity vehicles, venture capital vehicles, you know, they, well, venture capital actually is under a separate exemption, but uh, a hedge fund or a private equity fund, you're uh, being offered under an exemption from uh, the Investment Company Act. Before we, you know, you said a few things that we're going to be touching on a little bit more in the context of stable coins. But before we do so, first, uh, we had uh, Matt Hogan from Bitwise on the podcast some time ago. So I encourage everybody to listen to it. Uh, and while I'm calling out prior episodes, uh, Greg also was at Catamuchin, which you might recognize was also Gary DeWall's uh, firm. And they actually work together. So certainly check that one out as well. Um, Gary's the best. And Matt's Gary. the best. Matt's the great communicator. Uh, and, yes. and Gary is the uh, the great commodities thinker. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. Of course, I don't put anybody on the podcast who I don't think has something valuable to add. So uh, it's sort of definitional. Let's talk about May 11th. 
and what happened on May 11th as it relates to ETFs, BTC ETFs, because you know, there's been a lot of talk, you know, you just talked about like, there's an issue with holding physical BTC as a fund, but if you hold a BTC future, it's okay. So let's, let's sort of, you know, delve into that for a little bit and, and, and what happened on May 11th and what stemmed from it. Yeah. So on, on May 11th, there was a letter that came out from, or actually more, more accurately, they referred to it as a staff statement that yep. related to the use of of uh, of Bitcoin cash settled futures available on the CME, and you know to understand May 11, we've got to go back in time a little. We go back in time. We go back to the end of 2017 when the CME and the CBOE first launched cash settled Bitcoin futures, and that was a big deal. The market took a lot of time to develop and mature. Uh, CBOE actually ended up withdrawing from the Bitcoin futures market. CME uh, has has grabbed the lion's share of the standardized cash settled time bounded futures. Um, they're not the only ones who are doing it. Ledger X uh, was a big pioneer, and, and SolidX, I believe, also Terra Exchange. Uh, there, there have been a handful of folks that have, within the U.S. framework, pioneered and, things like futures and options. And notably, Ledger X was acquired recently by FTX. Uh, yes. So they're extending their um, foothold into the, I guess, the, the future settle space. So continue, yeah. sorry. And FTX is, uh, you know, a, a market leader, particularly offshore in the non-US derivative space, uh, not available to US investors, which which we'll, we'll talk about a little bit also. That's an area where the digital asset space has innovated and uh, there are material futures markets outside of what we think in the US of traditional large futures markets like ICE uh, and, and CME and CBOE. But within the US at the end of 2017, you had CME and CBOE launch cash settled futures. Later on, you would see some innovation from uh, the Intercontinental Exchange and BACT, which launched physically settled Bitcoin futures wrapped around the, uh, the BACT warehouse. A, a, a licensed and, and regulated custodian for those purposes, but you know th- when the CME launched, you actually had a, a quick rush to file from numerous parties of uh, futures-based ETFs, and I'll, I'll return to, to to that in a moment. The distinction between spot and futures-based. ETFs and, and, and why that distinction is important and how it's playing out in, in current news and current developments. But when you had that launch in 2017, you had a rush of people to file. The, the people who filed what's called a, a 1940 Act futures-based fund, which uses a structure called a, a Cayman wholly owned substructure. So investment companies can only hold Investment companies are supposed to hold securities on a primary primary basis. The primary portion of their portfolio is supposed to be securities. If you are holding a Bitcoin future, you are holding a derivative instrument based on a commodity, which isn't generally regarded as a security. So you can't just do a, a 1940 Act ETF that holds Bitcoin futures. You have to use a structure where you're holding... Uh, the securities of an underlying Cayman sub or, or another trading vehicle that will itself hold futures and then hold yourself out and represent yourself to be a, an investment company. So the people who filed that structure 
which grants you certain preferential tax treatment, largely that you can be a 1099 filer instead of a, uh, a partnership, as well as now with Rule 6C11, you don't need to get a, a, a independent 19B4 listing rule for your exchange, which is a separate complicated issue that uh, we'll again talk about in the context of the Bitcoin ETF process. But the folks who filed that type of fund with the Division of Investment Management were told to withdraw it, and they did. Uh, the folks who filed as a commodity pool, an exchange-traded commodity pool, uh, which is an S1 filer, well, three of them went through to the process of applying for uh, a listing rule, uh, a Rule 19b4 rule um, filing. They they were rejected by the commission uh, and the commission staff in the same way that uh, various attempts at a spot Bitcoin ETF were rejected. And that led to this, this process, particularly of the withdrawals of 1940 Act rules, led to the Division of Investment Management writing a letter to the Investment Company Institute called the Engaging in Fund Innovation Letter or the Fund Innovation Letter from uh, the beginning of 2019. And that letter was really important in that it laid out with specificity the concerns that the division had uh, with respect to investment companies providing exposure to digital assets. And that included concerns over uh, liquidity of the underlying markets, both spot and, and futures, M underlying market manipulation for spot Bitcoin or, or spot crypto custody issues valuation issues and uh, disclosure issues and specific to ETFs, the ability for an effective arbitrage mechanism. And that letter has for, you know, for basically two years uh, been a real thorn in the side of investment company sponsors who sought to get exposure to the crypto ecosystem. Eventually over time, they started obtaining that exposure through small sleeves that would be invested, uh, oddly enough, in GBTC, uh, because GBTC is an equity investment. And um, very famously, uh, you know, the ARC, ARC funds from Kathy Wood uh, took a significant position in GBTC and did very well with that. Uh, a variety of other funds uh, and fund sponsors have done that as well. But Generally speaking, uh, investment companies, whether mutual fund or ETF, could not get significant exposure to crypto either through direct holdings or through the futures market. That did change in May 11. Well, it first changed uh, about a year or so ago when Stone Ridge was allowed to launch a very small uh, 25 million cap interval fund, which is a closed end vehicle that was sold to certain specific institutional purchasers and subject to controls for liquidity and only investing in cash settled futures. And in doing so, they were able, because of the maturity of the CME market, to address the SEC's concerns on liquidity by capping their size, on valuation because of the history of the CME producing a good reportable regulated price for CME futures, didn't have the arbitrage issue, didn't have custody issue because they weren't ever going to have spot Bitcoin. And they you know, were able to, to get the SEC comfortable with their disclosure. That was the only registered vehicle for a long time uh, that, that could obtain exposure to these futures. But that changed on May 11 
when the staff basically stated that mutual funds with appropriate strategies and proper disclosure could obtain exposure to uh, cash settled futures. That was quickly followed by filings from parties, including uh, Invesco and uh, Valkyrie and Stone Ridge for Bitcoin mutual funds and Bitcoin uh, ETFs uh, eventually. Um, and I, I should say, I think I'm not sure Valkyrie filed a mutual fund. I think they filed uh, a Bitcoin ETF uh, using futures. So we do now actually have an operational Bitcoin ETF, uh, mutual fund available in brokerage accounts that holds cash settled futures. And again, it was the SEC saying in the context of mutual funds where a fund could manage the amount of liquidity it, it needs in the underlying market, meaning you can cap the size of a mutual fund by simply halting new creations. And you don't have the custody issue with an appropriate strategy, with an appropriate set of disclosures. You can launch a, a Bitcoin mutual fund. And that has happened. And that's an important innovation. It has a different impact than a Bitcoin ETF. But we now have upcoming in the next month or so, the potential to have a launch of a Bitcoin ETF using the Cayman wholly owned sub 1940 act structure that there are a handful of filers who are on the clock and who may actually go live in the next month or so. And that would be a, a big sea change. And that one actually comes from a, a speech from Gary Gensler in, at the Aspen Security Institute in, I believe it was the end of July, where he basically invited people to file Bitcoin ETFs to, I think his quote was, uh, interested to see what the staff will say, um, which was a invitation to please come and, and file Bitcoin ETFs in this particular form under the Investment Company Act. So, so given all the uh, history uh, behind Bitcoin, how is, what's the pathway for Ethereum? Yeah, Ethereum is very interesting in a, a couple of different ways. One, you know, Gary Gensler has somewhat been, I don't know if cagey is the right word, that's probably not the right word, but less willing to affirmatively comment on his view of the prior administration's perspective on Ethereum, specifically, uh, you know, when Gary, when Howie met Gary Plastics, uh, the Hinman speech. And the position from the prior administration that Ether may not, despite its uh, genesis sale, may not constitute a security today. But Ethereum is relatively hot on the heels of Bitcoin from the perspective of having a regulated futures market available, specifically uh, CME uh, Ether futures, are tracking perhaps on a faster pickup than uh, the Bitcoin futures market did in, in 2017. Uh, I can't recall if they were launched in 2019 or 2020, but they're still relatively novel, still don't, still don't have a particularly long life cycle uh, and have had far fewer filings for Ether-based products. There were around the same time we saw these Bitcoin 1940 Act ETFs be filed in late July and early August. There were a couple of filings for Ether futures, but 
but those met the same fate that the original Bitcoin 1940 Act DT futures filers met at the end of 2017, which is they withdrew, which means they were told to withdraw. And it means the SEC may be ready for, for Bitcoin futures, but they need to see something more on the Ether futures market before uh, before we see those come to play. But it is important to note that if you look at the, the trajectory of the market and particularly the offerings from the CME uh, and other regulated U.S. large-scale futures platforms, we see Bitcoin and we see Ether and we don't see currently other products on the near-term time horizon, right. which means that you know if we're looking at the futures market as being essential to the introduction of a Bitcoin or an Ether ETF, whether it's a spot ETF or a futures ETF, we're going to need, in all likelihood, uh, a, a strong regulated U.S. futures market for, for those products to be introduced. So I don't know what the prognostication is for non-BTC and non-ETHE Bitcoin or non Bitcoin or non ETH uh, ETFs in the near term, regardless of how they're introduced. I think for those products, uh, frankly, the the GBTC model is is probably the most appropriate and uh, the the one that has the the near term likelihood of of operation. So if you're looking at you know a fund that's going to launch on a, a different asset that's really what you're what you're geared towards and if you've got an index based fund it probably has to be one that's that's dominated by bitcoin or ether to have an opportunity to to really go onto uh the 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 broader exchange traded fund market right so you don't see an etf in doge anytime soon i i do not uh yes I I, and i, I, I appreciate I that you chose a pretty benign, harmless asset where people won't yell at me on Twitter based on what I'll comment. <laughs> uh, what about Shiba? Anyway, so um, <laughs> moving on to to stable coins, you know, because, you know, there's been a lot of talk uh, recently, a lot of focus by the, the SEC on stable coins and by the, the Federal Reserve. It's pretty clear that there is some sinking. They're working together. They're obviously trying to achieve some sort of similar objective as it relates to stable coins and, and the risks that they pose, uh, at least as framed. But Gensert has talked about and others have talked about stable coins as holding securities. Uh, to your point, you noted even commercial paper is deemed to be a security. And so that raises a specter of whether A, they are securities themselves and thus requiring an S1, or whether they are in fact funds and could be regulated under a different structure as well. Yeah, uh, and it's it, it's case specific. You know, when we look at stable coins, there are you know a, a variety of buckets in, in which they operate. You have one uh, these fiat backed stable coins, which are, are backed by dollars in in a bank account. Um, you know, examples of that would be Gemini and Paxos. Uh, Paxos also uh, has made public that they hold treasuries as well, uh, but treasuries are considered cash items under the Investment Company Act. Then you have, you know, tokens that are based on cash and cash equivalents, and that would include USDC, which has transitioned, I believe, as of very recently to also holding only cash and, and government securities. 
Um, they previously held some commercial paper. And then you have, uh, you know, another prominent one, which is Tether, which has a different set of holdings um, that is, is more strongly dominated by commercial paper. Tether, my understanding is, does not currently offer its token directly into the U.S., which is an important distinction because it, it, it may implicate the how the Investment Company Act is applied to it. But for Gemini, Paxos, USDC, uh, and, and other tokens that are operating on a primary market basis here in the U.S. and perhaps also on a secondary market basis, you do have to be mindful of what your asset holdings are. And I would note this isn't just true for stable coins. This is also true for invest for, for operating companies. Operating companies, particularly around major corporate events or acquisitions, have to be careful that they are not becoming what's referred to as an inadvertent investment company. And, and this is a sometimes forgotten part of the stablecoin discussion. We'll talk a little bit about some of the other securities law analysis that really focuses more on the 33 and the 34 Act. But uh, there, there is a question as to whether or not these stablecoin pools, the reserve pools, are themselves investment companies and uh, required to comply with the Investment Company Act. Uh, the general rule there is that to to not to not trigger this 40% test in becoming an inadvertent investment company you cannot have more than 40% of your assets in investment securities what's what's not an investment security spot commodities so weirdly enough bitcoin wouldn't be an investment security um, we know that from from sec uh, correspondence filings cash fiat currency either us or, or international is not an investment security. Government securities are, are not investment securities. In addition, the securities of subsidiary companies, uh, meaning companies that you're operating uh, or you own a majority stake in or a controlling stake. Uh, when you're thinking about this, think Berkshire Hathaway. Berkshire Hathaway is not an investment company because they manage their holdings such that their positions are largely controlling stakes, meaning that they, they don't own stock in companies, they own positions that make these companies their subsidiaries. And that's what keeps them out of the Investment Company Act. But it's also what probably keeps their their 40 Act lawyers quite busy. And so for, for stable coins, we've got to look at what's the composition of the holdings. Uh, and it's what makes their attestation reports and their financial accounting practices very important, uh, not just for the importance of understanding transparency and what do these stable coins actually hold, but also from a regulatory perspective in thinking about, you know, are they actually tripping up the investment company? And that's one piece of the concern is, uh, you know, what are these stable coin issuers holding? How are they managing their, their, their portfolio of assets? They're, when Tether first launched in 2014, 2015, you know, it was a different interest rate environment and you could generate a lot of revenue off of just passively sitting cash in a bank account. That's become problematic both because of the, the scope of the size of these stable coins, i.e. it's very difficult to actually park in the case of, of USDC, they crossed 30 billion in assets, 30 billion USDC issued, 30 billion in assets. Uh, yesterday, actually, Jeremy Allaire announced it publicly. It's actually hard to put $30 billion in bank accounts. And yes. uh, and then uh, apart from that, 
you know, we're in an interest rate environment where these bank accounts aren't throwing off significant income. So there is a temptation to chase yield, whether it's in the treasuries market, which also doesn't frankly throw off a ton of income right now, or as we've seen with, with some stablecoin issuers, uh, a move towards commercial paper. But when you do that, you also are starting to manage the portfolio in a way that can impact the risk profile to the uh, the holders of the tokens who, who may have a right of redemption against the underlying portfolio. So when we look at that, you know, you start to, to, to start to start questioning, okay, what do these uh, stable coins look like? Uh, can they be in investment contracts? Can they be notes? Uh, can they be other indebted uh, evidence of indebtedness, which is another broad term in the definitions of the of security under the 33 and 34 Act? And you start looking at, at some of these other uh, tests that are out there, like like Howie for investment contracts and Reeves for uh, for, for notes. Uh, I don't know that we'll go down that that rabbit hole fully, but May for these the time. Tests, <laughs> yeah, for these yeah. asset uh, these asset backed. Uh, stable coins again we're looking there the fiat backed and then the uh, the the mixed asset backed i.e commercial paper uh, you, you have questions there then you have the real asset backed um, there are some that are for example uh, based on gold or Paxos's gold uh, uh, stable coin there are some that will hold other assets there are some that will hold crypto native assets so for example maker, is uh, is another their Dai token is another very prominent stablecoin, and that's based on collateral held in originally ETH, but now I think a significant portion of their uh, their holdings are actually USDC. So it's turtles all the way down, I guess. And and then the final version is uh, algorithmic stablecoins, where algorithmic stablecoins present uh, a different question in that a they're large they're at least aspirationally decentralized, uh, but they do rely on actors, whether autonomous or not, to uh, adjust supply and demand to, to pick a targeted price. And I think the SEC has some concerns as to whether or not that has implications for investment country, uh, investment contract status. Right. I think you're talking like about the seniorage model and, and how you issue different uh, types of tokens to, to perform a uh, market clearing function. Yeah. So there's different, definitely different questions on the algorithmic stable coins. It doesn't seem narrowly within what the SEC would, you know, typically define as a security per se. Uh, and certainly I would think with the algorithmic stable coins, they could probably reconstruct <laughs> through innovation and basically stay on this notion that it's algorithmically determined. It requires a fair amount of trust. We talked a lot about stable coins with Jonathan Wu on a prior podcast as well. So we, we sort of hit on these issues and the troubling tether issue where, you know, you have to ask yourself, like, if you've sort of established that thinking in terms of tether as a fund in, in a legal context also raises the question, it's like, hey, if I'm going to invest in a fund manager, am I choosing Tether or am I choosing a fund manager? And I think most people would say, uh, yeah, that's not really what not what we're betting, particularly since we don't have any visibility as to what that commercial paper is. Uh, you know, uh, apparently, if you want to get a, a, a piece of the uh, Chinese real estate market, it's a good place. That's just a joke, by the way. That's not nothing substantive to that. So shifting gears, I, I had to do my little dig on Tether before moving on. It's uh... <laughs> so if BlockFi. 
Uh, let's move on to like the U.S. And, 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 you know, we talked about the funds and the funds construct. And then we talked about how that construct could be applied to existing non-funds saying basically, hey, if you hold this, this many uh, securities, you know, 40 percent or more, then you could be deemed to be a fund and, and requiring to register. You know, in, in Tether's case, they're not onshore. So it raises a whole bunch of issues, but it's also held by onshore uh, by U.S. persons. So there you have it. Let's shift gears to some of these lending programs. You know, BlockFi uh, got hit with a whole slew of of uh, state securities regulators' actions recently. It was kind of surprising that it came. It seemed to come primarily from the states. Maybe they were having conversations with the SEC as well. That hasn't. I don't think that's been disclosed. Uh, but what happened with BlockFi, and 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 what is that? What is what's going on with BlockFi's interest uh, program? Uh, was it raised? Yeah, I think it it raises questions on a number of different angles. Questions which I would note are are not abundantly clear. There are uh, gradations of, of of scale here on, on what BlockFi is doing and others in the space. But as I understand it, BlockFi's original business model was typical lending desk operation. They would borrow. Uh, or acquire capital from institutional or accredited market players. And they pivoted a couple of years ago into uh, opening up uh, retail accounts. And that meant they would create a wallet uh, hosted by a third-party custodian where retail users could deposit a variety of assets with them and enter into an arrangement whereby those assets could be lent out to third parties by BlockFi's lending desk and uh, generate interest. And presumably, BlockFi would earn more income from their outside activities or or their their activities with the deposited assets or or provide custodied assets than they would pay in, in these variable interest rates they would set for their customers. So you can earn, you know, X percent for, for Bitcoin or, you know, seven, eight, ten percent for a stable coin that you hold with BlockFi or others and that you allow BlockFi to turn around and use through lending to, to third parties or through other activities that could generate income. I am characterizing their operations, you know, generally as as I see them on a practical basis. Uh, I don't think I use necessarily the same language that they use in their terms of service. Uh, I, I think there's not a huge amount of outside transparency from uh, on exactly what goes on. Their terms are you know, well crafted, but it doesn't exactly explain. Um, the full operations that that they have, and that's similar among other participants in the market. So New Jersey uh, was the first state to bring an action, quickly followed by Alabama, Texas, and Virginia. They've also moved against one of their other market competitors. And what's interesting about New Jersey is the attorney general in New Jersey, a gentleman by the name of, of Grewal, actually is the new enforcement director at the SEC. Uh, so about two weeks after he made the transition from the New York, uh, New, pardon me, New Jersey Attorney General's office to the SEC, his former deputy, now acting Attorney General in New Jersey, brought the case that Grewal had built, and uh, notably, uh, 
Grewal at the SEC enforcement to be uh, distinguished from Grewal at Coinbase uh, as their chief legal officer, uh, a coincidence of name and, and now a <laughs> confluence of events, bringing the two of them together around Coinbase's version of this product uh, or pr- proposed version of the product, which was Lend. So, uh, you know, back to BlockFi's model, what's not entirely clear is what the structure of the relationship on this account is. Is it a uh, asset that has been loaned to BlockFi and that BlockFi is then using to lend to other parties or generate income? Is it that BlockFi is some kind of an agent that is not actually taking ownership of the assets pursuant to a loan, but rather matching its customers with third-party borrowers? And, you know, you look at these products and uh, under both the Howie test and the Reeves test, and you say, you know, what is this? And and then also you come down to what is the actual account? Is it a a deposit account, which might be required to be regulated under the FDIC Act or under under banking rules? BlockFi is not a bank. Um, There also are money transmitter issues for uh, any person who's operating this without having appropriate licensure. Uh, I do believe BlockFi has some some money transmission licenses. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily the case for all of the parties who are proposing or operating uh, these types of programs. But, you know, if it's not a loan and and you're operating this uh, and not taking ownership and uh, when you're taking possession, there's a question of, are you actually being a money transmitter? Uh, on behalf of these third parties, even if you are using a well-regulated custodian to host, if you have ownership and control over over these uh, these accounts. So there are a variety of of questions that are raised that are, you know, at least in some respects, novel in structure, but that certainly have raised significant questions. And there are some prior examples where, Things have been done in this space, you know, peer-to-peer lending platforms like Prosper and the like went through similar questions with the SEC. Now, what's distinguishable about two of the products out there, Lend was proposed and Genesis Gemini Earn, is those are structured not as these sort of deposit accounts, but rather structured as lender use agreements where you know ownership is at least in the context of the loan is transitioning to the the party that's engaging in the activity which in the case of Gemini Earn is actually Genesis Trading a broker dealer and in the case of Coinbase would have been Coinbase Global so they raise a lot of interesting questions and um, you know I think it it's it's something where I think you're right that it's very interesting that this is developing on the state level for BlockFi, whereas Coinbase was was presented with a very public instance of butting heads with the SEC on this, which they have now at least announced that for the time being, um, Coinbase Lend is is not in their immediate plans. So a lot of uh, ground to cover. You know, we've we've covered a portion of it. Uh, there, there, there's so much in the regulatory space these days. It's it's sort of like drinking from a fire hose. Well, I will I will go back to where I started, and and it's a quote I've used before at at a conference. But back to the Greek roots, uh, Greek roots, and Democritus, uh, tapantare, which is the stream always flows, 
And the saying there is when you step in a stream once uh, and then you step in it again later, it's actually a different stream because all of the water has been flowing. And that's what it feels like to be a lawyer in the crypto space. You're never stepping into the same stream. And to be honest, the currents can be pretty damn strong. Greg, thanks so much for uh, coming on the podcast. This was great. Really appreciate it. It was very, hope everybody who listened to it, uh, you, you know, you may want to listen to it again if you're a non-legal type or something, but, uh, you know, funds are definitely going to become a hot topic of discussion in the context of digital assets. So what we were trying to do here is sort of set some of the some of the groundwork. So as these all this noise flies by, when you step into a stream, maybe you have a better sense of which stream you're stepping into. So Greg, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Eric.